text for our sermon this Lord's Day is from Deuteronomy chapter 24, first four verses. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her and write her a bill of divorcement and giveth it in her hand and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die which took her to be his wife, her former husband which sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. After that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Having thus far considered the teaching of Christ from Matthew 19.9, the teaching of Paul from 1 Corinthians 7.15 in regard to divorce and remarriage, Let us now consider the teaching of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. But before we can consider the text itself, we must make a few preliminary remarks regarding the way in which we approach continuity of revelation from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Two remarks that I would make. Number one, We are to assume that God's moral law continues unabated in authority and obligation from the Old Testament into the New Testament. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. We have a definition given to us by the Lord through His Apostle as to what sin is. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law, that is, of God's moral commandments, of God's moral law. Sin is violating, transgressing God's law, His holy law. In 1 John as well, we are taught in chapter 1. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. How can Christians sin if they do not sin against the law of God. That is what constitutes sin, according to the Lord. Therefore, the law is of moral abiding obligation not only upon God's people, 
in the Old Testament and upon all nations and all peoples, but upon God's people in the New Covenant as well and upon all nations and peoples that live today. The second preliminary remark that I would make is this. We're also to assume that there are discontinuities from the Old Testament to the New Testament when considering the ceremonial and judicial laws of the Old Testament. There is not only continuity of God's moral law from the Old to the New, but there is also discontinuity, a break from the Old to the New as a re- in regard to the ceremonial and judicial laws. In Galatians chapter 4, we read in the first three verses, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. What are the elements of the world? Verse 9 and 10. But now, after that, ye have known God, or rather are known of God. How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. You see, the problem with the Galatians is that they were succumbing to the false teaching that they needed to return to the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. They would thereby be faithful or even justified on the basis of keeping that particular law. But God says that the people of God in the Old Testament were like children under age, under these particular ceremonies, these ceremonial laws and judicial laws. But when they were come of age, when Jesus Christ came, they were no longer under bondage to these particular so-called elements of the world. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, these ceremonies are called shadows of things to come. Colossians chapter 2 says the same thing. The fullness of the body is Christ. In many places, that that which God commanded in the Old Testament, therefore, is abolished because it was intended to be a temporary ceremony, ordinance, or sign for Israel alone in pointing forward to the coming of Christ and the establishment of his new covenant. Now, the necessity of applying these distinctions to Deuteronomy chapter 24 will become apparent as we proceed through our text this Lord's Day. For there is some discontinuity in regard to divorce and remarriage from the Old Testament into the New Testament, And there is some continuity from the Old Testament into the New Testament. The main point, dear ones, in this outline 
for the sermon this Lord's Day are as follows. Number one, circumstances under the first marriage, Deuteronomy 24.1. Number two, circumstances under the second marriage, Deuteronomy 24, verses 2 and 3. Number three, legislation concerning a third marriage, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 4. Let us consider then the first main point, circumstances under the first marriage. Look with me again, Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 1. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 24.1 gives various circumstances surrounding a hypothetical divorce under the Old Covenant. Now, as we've noted in previous sermons, there is no specific place to which we can turn in the scriptures wherein divorce is first instituted. To the contrary, divorce was already being practiced amongst Israel at the time in which it is first mentioned in the Old Testament. For example, in Leviticus chapter 21, verse 7, Leviticus 21, 7 the first place that we find divorce mentioned. There it says, They shall not take a wife, speaking of the priests, they shall not take a wife that is a whore or profane, neither shall they take a woman put away from her husband that is divorced, for he is holy unto his God. Uh, mentioned no, not by way of institution of divorce, but by way of simply mentioning who the priest could not marry. Later on in that same chapter, verse 14, again, notice, a widow or a divorced woman or profane or a harlot, these shall he not take. This is speaking of the high priest. But he shall take a virgin of his own people to wife. Let me mention one uh, actually, two other places where we find uh, divorce just kind of casually mentioned in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses, Leviticus chapter 22, verse 13. This is speaking of the priest's daughter, certain conditions under which she could actually partake of the food which was to be given to the priest and his family. It says in verse 12, If the priest's daughter also be married unto a stranger, she may not eat of an offering of the holy things. But in verse 13, But if the priest's daughter be a widow or divorced, 
and have no child and is returned unto her father's house as in her youth, she shall eat of her father's meat, but there shall no stranger eat thereof. Again, simply by way of casual reference, speaking of a, uh, a daughter of a priest who is divorced, but not declaring when the institution of divorce occurred. One last reference is to Numbers chapter 30, verse 9. Here, in this chapter, it speaks of a woman who has taken a vow unto the Lord and under what conditions she is to perform that vow and under what conditions she is exempt from performing that vow that she swore unto the Lord. One of those particular conditions is stated as in verse 8, verse immediately preceding, verse 8, But if her husband disallowed her on the day that he heard it, then, shall, then he shall make her vow which she vowed, and, the lip, and that which she uttered with her lips, wherewith she bound her soul, of none effect, and the Lord shall forgive her. Then going into verse 9, But every vow of a widow... And of her that is divorced, wherewith they have bound their souls, shall stand against her. And so again, indicating that a widow or one who is divorced, since they are not under the authority of a husband or a father, they are bound by their vows. But again, only a casual reference, nothing by way of when divorce was instituted. In these casual references, which I've just read, we find no indication that would even imply that divorce was unlawful in and of itself. In fact, in Numbers 30, verse 9, where the widow and the divorced woman are actually mentioned side by side without any inference of unlawfulness. One might even infer from this particular passage that if divorce was unlawful in and of itself, then so was widowhood. Furthermore, as we consider passages from the Old Testament, such as Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 19, you can turn there if you'd like, I'll summarize basically what's there wherein a husband falsely accuses his new wife of premarital unfaithfulness. His punishment is stated to be that he is not permitted to divorce her all of his days. The same punishment is also found in, a, in a, another situation in Deuteronomy 22, verse 29. In that case as well, the husband is not permitted to divorce his wife all of her or all of his days. Now I ask, if this is a man's punishment, that he's not permitted to divorce his wife all of his days, does that not imply that divorce must have been lawful in some cases in the Old Testament? Under 
some very specific circumstance or circumstances. If that's a punishment, he cannot divorce her, then it certainly again implies there must be other situations in which it is lawful. Moreover, as we continue to look at the Old Testament, we find in Ezra chapter 10, verse 11, that Ezra, God's anointed prophet and priest, commands those Israelites who had married foreign women who were devoted to other gods, he commands them to put their wives away. He does not say to annul the marriage because there never was a marriage in the first place, he commands them to put away or to divorce their wives. Because it was an express prohibition, the law which God had given to his people, that they were not to take unto themselves any foreign wives who served false gods. Again, that demonstrates that divorce in the Old Testament was not lawful, unlawful in and of itself. And finally, the Lord himself establishes the lawfulness of divorce in specified cases by using this very language in regard to his divorce of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, there you see that God gave to Israel a writ of divorce and put her away. From all of this testimony that I've just summarized, it is apparent that God did indeed permit divorce in the Old Testament under some very specific stated circumstances. For what circumstance or circumstances then was divorce permitted in the Old Testament? Well, let us consider Deuteronomy 24, 1, where it says, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, notice these words, because he hath found some uncleanness in her. Here is the reason given for this woman being put away or divorced by her husband. Some uncleanness. There does not appear to be any condemnation of the husband in this manner as if he put her away for an unlawful cause. But it would rather appear that the fault, as we read the text, lay with the wife in whom was found specifically some uncleanness. But to what does this uncleanness refer? I know some of the sermons that we, you have heard recently get quite technical at times. And I don't know any other way to approach such issues that are before us than to present to you the principles and when need be to, to present even the technical principles so as, to, so as to understand how to apply these principles to marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so I encourage you, listen carefully, diligently to what is about to be said. And certainly if you do not understand, feel free to come and to talk further with myself or the elders. 
Uh, wives, address your questions to your husbands first, and uh, if there are still questions thereafter, come and speak with us because we'd love to try and clear these up further. But you realize there's only so much time that, that I have in the course of a sermon. You'll remember that when the Lord Jesus dealt with the issue of divorce and remarriage in Matthew 19, he was responding to a question put to him by the Pharisees. The question was this, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Underlining, highlighting that last part, for every cause. You'll find that question in Matthew 19.3. Those Pharisees who represented the position that a man could indeed put away his wife for whatever reason he thought appropriate were disciples of Rabbi Hillel who taught that if the wife burnt or spoiled her husband's food by oversalting it, or if he found another woman more beautiful than her or more agreeable to him, he simply had to give her a bill of divorce and send her from his house and he could take another wife. That was what the school of Hillel, the disciples of that particular school, believed and taught. This unrestricted view of divorce, they based upon the phrase that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, she find no favor in his eyes. And then they made the, the phrase some uncleanness to mean basically whatever displeased the husband. <clears throat> Clearly the Lord in Matthew chapter 19, condemned this interpretation and attributed this view to the hardness, that is, the sinful obstinacy of their hearts. This was not the biblical interpretation, the divine interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1. This was apparently the view that was being practiced in Israel at the time of Malachi the prophet as well. Consider with me the words of Malachi in Malachi chapter 2. The Lord takes up a controversy with the priests of Judah and with the men of Judah at large. Because, he says, they have dealt treacherously with the wife of their youth, to whom they are bound by covenant. They have put their wives away and married other women who are devoted, foreign women who are devoted to other gods. And God condemns them for divorcing their wives for these reasons. It certainly implies these particular men who were guilty of this sin in Malachi chapter 2 also followed that same interpretation that the school of Hillel did and that the Pharisees did at the time of Christ. But even more surprising to us, I think, would be that this was apparently the predominant view of divorce among 
Israel, not simply of the Pharisees, but of Israel at large at the time of Christ, as evidenced by the words of the disciples themselves. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, after the Lord, you'll recall, tells the disciples that a man, that whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. After the Lord giving that one exception of fornication for a believer to put away, or professing believer to put away a professing believer, or divorce that professing believer, after giving that one exception, his disciples respond by saying, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. If that's how strict and rigid marriage is, it is better that we not marry in the first place. You see, they had been enveloped and swallowed, hook, line, and sinker, the same position promoted by Hillel and by the Pharisees. They had fallen into the same trap. They found the position of the Lord to be too rigid and strict. And I challenge each of us this Lord's day, dear ones, how we must ever take heed that we not simply believe implicitly the view of parents or teachers or pastors or church fathers. You see, the disciples had simply, it would appear, swallowed the view of Hillel without carefully scrutinizing the Word of God, seeking to understand what the Word of God taught with regard to divorce and remarriage. This was a snare into which even apostles and teachers fell. And it not only was a snare into which they fell as it pertained to divorce and remarriage, But you'll remember in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, that Paul had to confront Peter and Barnabas and the Jews that comprised the church of Antioch with their own hypocrisy and saying that they could not eat with Gentiles and eat and partake of the food of the Gentiles that they must separate themselves from the Gentiles, and in effect, to be a Christian, they must become Jews. And Paul can not stand for that any longer, and publicly he stands up and rebukes an apostle, Peter, and other teachers of the church. You see, it is easy to be drawn along with the multitude to do that which is evil that which is false. Rather, the Lord would instruct us, dear ones, not to follow the popish doctrine of implicit faith and simply to believe what one is told because the church says so. Or simply to believe what one is told because a teacher or a pastor says so. 
but to diligently search the scriptures, as did the Bereans in Acts 17.11, who even take, took the scriptures and compared what the apostles themselves said to the scriptures. Dear ones, as you search the scriptures, and as you bring your questions to us as elders, we will never fault you for bringing questions, even doubts, even challenging the position of the church in various areas as you do so respectfully. We have a responsibility as elders to not tell you, believe it because we say so, but believe it because God says so. For God alone is Lord of the conscience. There was not only the school of Hillel that was prominent at that particular time in which Christ performed his earthly ministry, but there was also another school who followed another rabbi, the school of Shammai who restricted uncleanness spoken of the uncleanness spoken of in Deuteronomy 24:1 to some sexual sin that is fornication <clears throat> now in seeking to understand what this uncleanness or literally nakedness that's what the word literally is that's used in Deuteronomy 24.1, for uncleanness, literally nakedness, some nakedness. To understand to what that refers, we have at least at this point eliminated the possibility that it refers to divorce for every cause. But is there some merit in understanding the uncleanness as fornication or some sexual sin? On the negative side, there are some major problems with interpreting some uncleanness in Deuteronomy 24.1 to mean some act of fornication or sexual sin. The biggest problem being that God declared in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 22 through 24, that the guilty, that those guilty of fornication while married or betrothed, or those guilty of fornication with one who was married or betrothed, were not to be divorced, but rather were to be put to death. That's a major hurdle to overcome as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Two chapters previously, the Lord says that those who commit sexual sin, who are either betrothed or married, are not to be divorced, but to be put to death. However, on the positive side, in considering whether the phrase some uncleanness may refer to fornication or some other sexual sin, there are some important considerations that need to be made. First, the word used for uncleanness or literally nakedness does, not, does refer quite often to various types of sexual sins in Leviticus chapter 18 and in Leviticus chapter 20. There you find the phrase mentioned many times to uncover the nakedness. This is the same word. 
Second, the Lord taught that fornication is the only lawful reason for a believing husband to divorce a believing wife. In Matthew 19.9 and Matthew 5.32. Third, Joseph, the wife of or the husband of Mary, whom the scripture says was a just man and was not willing to make a public spectacle of Mary, his espoused wife. When he learned that she was with child before their marriage, was of a mind not to bring her before the civil magistrate so as to have her executed, but was of a mind to divorce her in the least conspicuous way, according to Matthew 1, verses 18 and 19. Now, one wonders how Joseph could even think of divorcing Mary for adultery, being a righteous man, a law-keeping man, if death was in all circumstances the only punishment that could be given to an adulterer or an adulteress. I simply raise the question at this point. Perhaps in certain cases of adultery, like that of entrapment, as we find in John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. But it was a case of entrapment. She was set up very specifically and enticed, apparently. And in certain cases of adultery, death may not be required, but rather divorce might be offered as a legitimate alternative in certain cases. Could there never be an extraordinary circumstance that might lessen the punishment for adultery from death to divorce? You know, I don't know for sure. But based upon the account of Joseph and the account of the woman caught in adultery, I think that at least it's a possibility. But let's assume for the present that adultery was always punished by death without exception then to what else might this uncleanness in Deuteronomy 24.1 refer? Well, the only other place where this precise phrase, not simply the word uncleanness, but the phrase, some uncleanness, the only other place where that phrase, some uncleanness, occurs is in Deuteronomy 23.14, just in the previous chapter. And there it has reference to God commanding the people of Israel to not leave their excrement in the camp, but to take a shovel outside the camp and to bury it. For he is holy. And this is a detestable thing for God to observe and to see. This is a nakedness some uncleanness or some nakedness in the eyes of God. And I would submit some possible 
references or alternatives to uncleanness in light of that particular passage. First of all, the uncleanness in Deuteronomy 24.1 might refer to other offenses found in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. As when a woman obstinately uncovers her nakedness to her husband during the time of her impurity. Leviticus 18.19 Such a flagrant and obstinate thing is in that chapter which is dealing with nakedness and covering the nakedness. Or perhaps, again, another possible reference or understanding as to what this uncleanness refers to. Perhaps it may refer to a woman who obstinately refuses to follow the difference which God has placed between ceremonial cleanness and uncleanness. As in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 25, again in that same chapter, where God is itemizing various forms of uncleanness and nakedness. And the Lord says this in verse 25, Ye shall shall therefore put difference between clean beasts and unclean, and between unclean fowls and clean, and ye shall not make your souls abominable by beast or by fowl or by any manner of living thing that creepeth on the ground which I have separated from you as unclean. And so perhaps for a woman to follow obstinately in that which God says is uh, is unclean to make it as it is to her at least clean which the Lord says is grounds to actually put her outside of the camp, outside of Israel, to separate her as she is obstinate, to cut her off from her people, to excommunicate her. Perhaps this could be the uncleanness that God has in mind when he says some uncleanness. Deuteronomy 24.1 Or one other possibility that comes to mind. Perhaps this uncleanness might refer to such behavior as is so contrary to nature as when a woman would seek to dress and appear as a man, like a transvestite, which is condemned in Deuteronomy 22.5. Perhaps something so contrary to nature that God says is so abominable that this is the uncleanness or nakedness that is referred to. Well, I've raised a lot of possibilities, have I not? What conclusions may we draw from the circumstances mentioned in Deuteronomy 24.1? Well, first of all, ultimately it would appear that it cannot be determined with absolute certainty to what precisely the uncleanness refers in Deuteronomy 24.1. 
That is not to say that those of Israel at the time of Moses did not know to what the uncleanness referred. I believe they did. So that it was not simply left up to the minds and imaginations of man. But I believe that it is not clear to us, at least at this point, or not clear to me, let me speak for myself, at this point as to what specifically or precisely that uncleanness refers to. That's the first conclusion that I would draw. Second, to whatever the uncleanness refers, it was not a divorce for just any cause. As we mentioned earlier, for that type of divorce for just any cause is condemned by Moses in the institution of marriage in Genesis 2, is condemned by Malachi in the condemnation of those who divorce their wives for any cause in Malachi 2, and is condemned by the Lord in his rebuttal to the Pharisees in Matthew 19. There was a specific and specified cause or causes for a lawful divorce in the Old Testament. This relates to the continuity of God's moral law from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Remember, we talked about certain things being continuous. God's moral law being continuous. God's moral law states that there are lawful reasons, specified reasons for a divorce. They are not left up to the imagination of man. Whatever God specified in the Old Testament with regard to a lawful cause, that moral principle that there is likewise a, a moral cause, a lawful reason in the New Testament carries from one to the other. We cannot simply say that it didn't matter in the Old Testament, but it does now in the New Testament. Third conclusion that I would draw from Deuteronomy 24.1 is this. If the uncleanness in Deuteronomy 24.1 does not refer to some act of fornication or sexual sin, then that cause for divorce, I would submit to you, was limited to Israel alone for the Lord makes it clear that fornication alone is cause for a professing believer to put away another professing believer. Whatever cause it may be other than fornication, I would submit to you, is limited to Israel alone because Christ makes it clear in the new covenant, the one exception the one ground or reason for a professing believer to put away a professing believer. We ought not to think that's so unusual because we find in Ezra chapter 10 that the Lord, through Ezra, his prophet and priest, commands Israel to put away their unbelieving wives, their idolatrous wives, Whereas Paul commands in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, that if the unbeliever, the heathen, the pagan, 
is willing to live with the believer, the unbeliever is not to be put away. And so the Lord in the new covenant does amend, alter, and change that particular law. Therefore, that law was expressly for Israel in Ezra chapter 10 and not for new covenant believers. So it wouldn't surprise us that if there were other causes which God has specified other than fornication, that those as well would apply to Israel alone and not to new covenant believers. The fourth conclusion that I would draw from Deuteronomy 24.1 is this. When there are lawful grounds for a divorce as specified by God in Scripture, an orderly procedure must be followed as indicated by the giving of a bill of divorcement. An orderly procedure, not simply rashly going out and saying, I want nothing to do with this woman or this man, but an orderly procedure that takes time, that is, to slow the process down, that is, to provoke thinking and meditation and reflection upon what is about to be done. That, too, is of moral equity and continues into the New Covenant. And finally, fifthly, the fifth conclusion, and I jump ahead for a moment to Deuteronomy 24.2 to note that when there is a lawful divorce, there is also a dissolution of the first marriage. For there is the constituting in De Deuteronomy 24.2 of a new marriage. It says in Deuteronomy 24.2, she may go and be another man's wife. After a lawful divorce, remarriage is granted. It is permitted because that first marriage is dissolved. It is ended. Now, these are the circumstances described under the first marriage, that first hypothetical marriage in Deuteronomy 24.1. We'll move much more quickly now as we approach the second main point. Circumstances under the second marriage. Consider with me Deuteronomy 24, verses 2 and 3. <clears throat> there we find these words. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and giveth it in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife. And I'm stopping in the middle of the sentence, as it were, but I want to stop there and consider the second marriage. Now, as the hypothetical case described herein unfolds, we find that the woman here lawfully upon scriptural grounds, is put away by her husband and that she is then lawfully joined to another man. 
That's the, what the language indicates that is used there. How can we say that she is lawfully remarried? Because in Deuteronomy 24.3, the second man to whom she is joined is called her latter husband, which took her to be his wife. This is not considered an adulterous relationship, which would be the case if there was no lawful dissolution of the first marriage. Thus we see in this passage that which Christ and Paul also taught, namely that when there is a lawful dissolution of a marriage for a scriptural reason, a lawful remarriage is also permitted. But note, in the second marriage there occurs a repeat of the circumstances of the first marriage. However, the language used in regard to the husband's disgust in the second marriage is even heightened. It says in the second marriage, and if the latter husband hate her. Not simply that she does not find favor in his eyes, but even heightened, he hates her. I submit to you again, it must be remembered that the latter husband could not simply hate her and lawfully divorce her for just every cause. That is condemned. That is not what Christ said the passage meant. So we must ask, why did he hate her? What is the reason for the strong language that is used there? I submit to you that back to Deuteronomy 24.1, this husband as well has found some uncleanness in her. You see, this idea of hating is also found in Deuteronomy 22, verse 13. But in Deuteronomy 22:13, again, this hatred of this husband for this wife does not occur in a vacuum. It's not just for every cause. But in this particular case, in Deuteronomy 22:13, the hatred occurs because his wife has apparently been unfaithful to him. That before they were actually joined in marriage, during the time of their engagement, she had been unfaithful to him. And so the hatred in Deuteronomy 22.13 has a just cause. And I would submit to you, so does the hatred that is mentioned in Deuteronomy 24.3 likewise have a just cause. There is, again, no condemnation of the husband in the second marriage, nor is there any condemnation of his reason for hating her. Nothing is stated in the scripture. He likewise writes her a bill of divorcement, dissolving the second marriage, so that the second marriage likewise is dissolved. There is no textual reason given whereby we might conclude that this divorce is any different than the first divorce, as if this divorce is not lawful, whereas the first divorce was lawful. Now, these are the circumstances of the second marriage. And the last point in this Lord's Day is the legislation concerning a third marriage. 
Deuteronomy 24.4, where it says, Her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that she is defiled, for that is abomination before the Lord. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Immediately as we begin verse 4, we observe again that there must have been a lawful divorce, at least from the first husband, for he is called in verse 4, her former husband, or her first husband. If she had not been lawfully divorced from her first husband, for biblical reasons specified by God, she would have been guilty, as we noted, of adultery for having been joined to a second man. Now, why is it that she cannot be joined again to her first husband? Why is she forbidden from returning to her first husband, having been married lawfully a second time? Is it because he has himself, that is the first husband, lawfully remarried and she cannot be joined to him? No. The text says nothing about his remarriage at all. If anything, silence about a second, uh, second marriage on the part of the first husband would seem to indicate that he is not remarried. Not that he has remarried. So why can't he be married to his former wife if he is still unmarried? Well, we must look for another reason. Secondly, is it because she was never lawfully divorced from her second marriage so that she can't be lawfully joined again to her first husband? That is, her second marriage was never lawfully dissolved so that if she were to be joined to her first husband again, she would commit adultery? Is that the reason? No. This cannot be the reason. For the prohibition against returning to the first husband in Deuteronomy 24.3 not only speaks, or Deuteronomy 24.4 not only speaks of the second husband divorcing the woman, but also of the second husband dying. It has nothing to do with merely her divorcing or her being divorced by her second husband. Even if her second husband dies, she cannot return to the first husband. Certainly, death dissolves the second marriage, even if one would say it is not dissolved by the divorce. So why, if death occurs in the second marriage, can she not return to the first husband? Furthermore, carefully note that this woman is not forbidden from marrying a third husband. The text never says she's forbidden. If there's a lawful divorce... It never says she's forbidden from marrying a third husband, but only forbidden from marrying her first husband again. Well, I offer to you a third reason 
Is the former husband forbidden from taking his first wife again because she has lawfully remarried another man? Yes. God says that when a lawful divorce occurs between a man and a woman, there is the opportunity of being remarried until there is a lawful second marriage established. After a divorce, a husband, a former husband and wife can be reconciled. They can be reunited. But after there occurs a remarriage, the Lord says there cannot be a return to that former, that first marriage. For the Lord says in Deuteronomy 24.4 that she is defiled. That is, she is defiled to her first husband. She is defiled. She is to be looked upon by the first husband as something he cannot touch any longer. Something or someone who is outside now the bounds of marriage to him. She is to be treated as one who is defiled. He cannot remarry her. It's too late. The Lord says that it is an abomination to do so. For apparently this was the practice of the godless nations all around them, which only encouraged quick and hasty divorces and no consequence, taking no consequence for their actions. Simply acting and reacting and then going back to a former marriage. You see, that type of an idea, God says, actually instills within man a disregard for marriage when one can jump back and forth with regard to marriage. No, one is to seriously consider and reflect and be sure that this is, in fact, the will of the Lord and that he or she is determined having biblical grounds to never be married to this person again if the Lord allows that divorced person to be remarried. Each step is taking a very definite step. Divorce takes a definite step. There can be reconciliation, but once there is a remarriage, there is no chance for reconciliation to be reunited. James Durham, in his book entitled The Law and Seal, pages 320 and 321, rightly states concerning the abiding morality of this precept the following. But if the divorce be made and the woman afterward married to another, her return to her first husband even after lawful dissolution of her second marriage. Notice Durham says there was a lawfully dissolved second marriage there. He says then, is an abomination to return to the first husband is an abomination and exceeding defiling he quotes Jeremiah 3 1 thus he says in dissolving marriages there may be guilt 
What Durham, I believe, means by that last phrase, thus in dissolving marriages there may be guilt, is that in lawfully dissolving marriages there yet may be guilt in one who can lawfully divorce. How? By way of hastiness. By way of no thoughtful reflection. Simply having the grounds and moving forward without really considering and thinking through the life-changing decisions that are before him or her. Giving no thought to it. And then afterwards, after the divorce, and then after a second remarriage, considering and thinking, oh, would I like to be joined to my first husband or wife again? Thus we see from Deuteronomy 24.4, the moral principle stated that a lawful second marriage removes the possibility of returning to the first marriage. In conclusion, turn with me, dear ones, to Jeremiah 3.1, if you have your Bibles. There we find these words. They say... If a man put away his wife and she go from him and become another man's, shall he return into her again? Shall not that land be greatly polluted? But thou hast played the harlot with many lovers. Yet return again to me, saith the Lord. The Lord quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 24 quotes his own law with regard to humans, to human contracts and marriages. And the Lord says that if a man divorces his wife, lawfully divorces and puts her away, and then the wife is remarried, and that is dissolved and she would either seek to be joined to her first husband or her first husband would join, seek to be joined to her. The law says it can't be done. But the Lord says, in my covenant with you, I have been lawfully joined to you. And you have been divorced by me for your adultery. And you have gone off and married others. You have been joined to other lovers, other gods. But unlike that human covenant of marriage, the Lord says, I call you to return to me. And I will be reconciled to you. This is a covenant. The covenant of grace is unlike the covenant of marriage with human beings, the Lord says. This I continue to hold forth to you who have departed from me. Come, be joined to me again. Repent and turn to me. And I will love you again. And you will be my wife. And I will be your husband. The words of Patrick Gillespie in his book, Ark of the Testament, opened... Page 127, I think, is so telling and appropriate at this point. 
He is giving reasons or ways in which the covenant of grace as a marriage covenant is different from human, the human covenant of marriage. Ways in which it is different. Listen to what he says. Feast upon these words, dear ones, as you think upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, among men, many things dissolve the marriage covenant which have not place in the covenant betwixt Christ and his people. One, adultery dissolveth other marriage covenants, Matthew 5.32. But the treacherous, whorish dealing of souls that are married to Christ doth not dissolve that covenant. But he will receive a treacherous wife when she turneth again to him, which men used not to do, according to God's law. He continues, Among men, divorce dissolveth marriage covenants. When a woman is put away for other causes, nor adultery. For in the case of adultery, the bill of divorcement was not used to be given. And lawfully married to another according to the Mosaical law, it was not free to the first husband to take her back again. That's again referring to Deuteronomy 24.1. But it is not so in a marriage covenant with Christ. He receiveth his wife even in this case if she return unto him. And then finally, death dissolveth other marriage covenants. Then they expire. He quotes Romans 7.3. If her husband be dead, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. And in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Luke 20, verse 35. But this marriage covenant with Christ is not, dear ones, is not dissolved by death. For Christ proveth that God is in covenant with the very dust of Abraham, And that through the force of that covenant, he should live again and rise from the dead. Nor is this marriage covenant finished at the resurrection, but perfected. How we rejoice, dear ones, that though a man cannot return to his first wife, be divorced and remarried with the Lord his arms are continually open to us his people the Lord invites you today dear ones all within the sounds of my voice come unto him embrace him no matter how you have sinned against the Lord no matter how many times how grievously you have sinned treacherously You have treated that marriage covenant with Christ. Return into the Lord. Pour out your heart before him. And he will receive you and reinstate you. Please stand with me in prayer. Our gracious Father, we do exalt thee for the covenant of grace. For the Lord Jesus Christ alone has fulfilled 
and purchase the conditions in that covenant for us. Though we are to believe and to take hold of Christ, Nevertheless, O Lord, it is even by thy grace that we can believe that was purchased for us as well. And so from beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. From beginning to end, thou wilt save and redeem. Thou wilt perfect thy bride. We praise thee, our Father, that not even death can separate us. From the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that Thou would would cause us this day to grieve over our many sins against our heavenly Husband. O Lord, look upon our hearts and cause us to see how we have offended Thee. And Father, bring us to that place where we rejoice in Thy faithfulness. We pray, Lord God, that Thou would seal these truths to our hearts this day. In Jesus' name, Amen. Days are like the grass. Frail man is dead. 
Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. 
It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.